0: Lights everywhere mark the beginning of the Christmas season. Families sit around and eat warm cookies, warm donuts, maybe even a little candy, as they erect, for what a season, will become the locus of the home, the family Christmas tree. And it, of course, has lights. Men and women will spend days in the cold, well, maybe that's me, but. Uh, or maybe day would be more accurate, uh, stringing Christmas lights on their house. I've actually become lazy over the past few years and figured out those holographic ones you can just like plug in and point. Lights on the house. If you go into the city, there are lights strung up from pole to pole, lights affixed in the windows of businesses. It's as if everything is covered in millions and millions of little stars. Christmas time, nighttime becomes the drawing back of a curtain as the world is transformed into a theater that displays millions and millions of brilliant, dazzling lights. At Christmas, darkness is eclipsed by beauty. And the lights are symbolic. They're a symbolic announcement of Christianity's meaning and the meaning of Christmas. The lights tell us that the world is a dark place. And without light, we'll never find our way out of it. Jesus is the light in the darkness. He's the light of salvation, the one whom we must trust If we are to escape the darkness of God's judgment, that's our main idea this morning, that Jesus is the light of salvation. And the exhortation follows on the heels of that. It's quite simple look to the light. I'm going to work through the text in two parts this morning the problem of darkness and the promise of light. Pray, do some background since we're in Isaiah rather than Acts. Uh, Those of you who are really worried, we'll be back in Acts after Christmas. Pick up where we left off. Right now, we'll do some of these Christmas texts. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be present with us this morning, and that you would send your Holy Spirit to fill up this place, that we would hear from you. Give us ears to hear. Help us to believe your word. And to obey it. God, we pray that you would speak now. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. And what we know not, teach us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we come to the book of Isaiah, and even though we're only going to touch on a very brief kind of section of it, it's important for us to understand that Isaiah is preaching about 200 years after King David has passed away, and about 150 years after the kingdom of Israel has been split into two. If you don't remember this big split, there are 10 tribes in the north, and there are two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, and they're faithful to the throne of David. How this came about was uh, there was a rebellion against King Solomon by a guy named Jeroboam who then uh, runs away into Egypt, I think. Uh, And then when Solomon dies, Rehoboam takes over and Jeroboam comes back. He's like, look, dude, you need to change these taxes. Give us lower taxes or we're going to rebel. And Rehoboam says to Jeroboam, I don't know how Boam must have been a nice like suffix to a name, I guess. Uh, but, But Rehoboam says to Jeroboam, if you thought my father's taxes were bad, you don't even know. You know like he says, basically like my pinky finger is stronger than my dad's thigh is kind of what he says. And he's like, I'm just gonna drop the tax hammer on y'all. And so Jeroboam is like, that's not happening, man. And he gets the other 10 tribes and they rebel and there's this rift in the kingdom. And so you have the northern tribes, there are 10 of them, and then the southern tribe king of Judah is what the southern kingdom is called, Judah. And the northern tribes are called Israel. Okay? And so this division has taken place, and Isaiah is preaching to them after this split has taken place, during, like, right after it's after um, Assyria has conquered the northern tribes, but before the southern tribes, or the Judah has been destroyed. Clear as mud there, right? Uh, And so what's happening in Isaiah is you have a letter that's filled with judgment. Primarily, that's probably the loudest theme in the book, and it happens through the first 39 chapters, is that judgment is coming to God's wayward people. And then the latter half of the book, chapters 40 through 66, tell us all about the hope of God's people. And you have the, the two themes kind of mixed together throughout. Uh, in the first part, we've got hope kind of sprinkled into judgment. In the latter half, you have judgment kind of sprinkled in together with the hope. But those are the two major things that are going on in this book. Isaiah is preaching to a wayward people who listen to themselves. They do what's right in their own eyes rather than acting according to God's Word. Isaiah preaches to a people who will not listen. God tells him as much in Isaiah 6. He says, Here am I, send me, Lord. And the Lord's like, I'm going to send you, but they're not going to believe you. They're not going to listen to you. And so you're not going to be very popular. It's a tough call. And so Isaiah is speaking to King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is the king of Judah. And it he comes to him in chapter 7 at the beginning and basically says, I know that you are in a tough spot. See, King Ahaz and Judah are being besieged by King Pekah, who's the king of Israel at this point, and king, Re- king Rezin, who is the king of Syria at this point. They've gotten together, King Pekah and Rezin. They've besieged Judah. They can't take Ahaz out completely, but they are making life really, really miserable. And so Isaiah comes to say, uh, King Ahaz, do not worry. Put your hope in God and this is going to work out. God is powerful enough to deliver you from the hands of your enemies. And Ahaz says, no. And instead, he employs the help of the king of Assyria. His name is tiglath pileser I always tried to remember his name by King Tiger, which just helped me. But, but Tiglath, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, Pilesar, it's hyphenated. But King Tiger of Assyria, he's like, all right, I'm in. And so he comes and he destroys in Damascus uh, the King King Rezin. I'm going to mix myself up. He he destroys King Rezin of Assyria, kills him, and scatters the rest of those that would oppress Judah. And it seems like Ahaz is this really brilliant politician. But he's not. Because Assyria turns around and subjugates Judah. They make them a, a vassal state. They have to pay them all this money, which in the end, doesn't really bother King Ahaz all that much. Because when he sees Damascus, he sees this altar in Damascus, and he just gets really enamored with pagan gods. To the extent that uh, the backdrop for most of this takes place in 2 Kings 16, to the extent that he sacrifices one of his children to these false gods. He reorients and changes the temple in Jerusalem. Now, all that to say, his wickedness is evident. He is truly vile, and his wickedness, his refusal to listen to the voice of God, is mirrored in Israel or Judah at large. The people have followed the way of their king. And in chapter 8 of Isaiah, he is telling of the coming Assyrian invasion. Times are very, very grim as Ahaz and Judah, as God's people, on the whole, generally are following their hearts rather than obeying and listening to God's word. And so it's at this point, Isaiah turns to this faithful remnant, these faithful people that are with him, his students, and he he tries to give them a bit of encouragement. He's going to give them a warning at the end of chapter 8, and then an encouragement in chapter 9, because things look so grim, so bleak. And so he says in verse 19, when they, that's the faithless, say to you, Inquire of mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter. Shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. It says, go to God's word instead. If they do not speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. They will wander through the land dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look upward with cursing in their mouths towards their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, only darkness and the gloom of affliction. They will be driven into thick darkness. The point of these verses are to say, those who disobey God in favor of, of doing what they want will bring themselves into the darkness of God's judgment. To disobey God is to bring upon oneself the right and just wrath of God. This is really relevant for us. This is relevant in our day because we, we like Ahaz, Ahaz, are often choosing to do what we want rather than what God wants. We are often choosing to, to follow our hearts instead of listening to God's voice. I mean, maybe this question will help, but if somebody in our culture asks the question, Where do you get peace and happiness? How do you get peace and happiness and meaning in life? The answer of the culture is going to be look within. Look inside of yourself and believe in yourself. That's how you're going to find peace and, and happiness and meaning in your life. It's just learning how to be you better. Look within. And if you believe in yourself, you can do anything you set your mind to. It's the theme of like every Disney movie, okay? And this, this believe in yourself mentality, I mean, it's evident. It's evident. It's everywhere. There's an old New York Times article that wrongly defines Christmas according to this sediment. This is what it said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, the solution to the world's problems, it's within us. The light is within you and me. If we just work together, we as the whole world can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we can overcome violence, we can overcome racism, we can overcome injustice, we can overcome all evil if we just work together and try hard. It's the same kind of sentiment, and I think I bring this song up every Christmas, partly because I kind of like it, it's a confession. Uh, It makes me think of that same happy Christmas hymn that's sung by John Lennon. Do you all know this one? I preached this sermon at Afton on Wednesday, and so like, I was like, do you guys know who John Lennon is? Some of them did, praise God. But you know the song. I'm going to sing Lennon's part, and then I'm actually, I'm going to want you all to sing the part of the children, because you know how the kids come in, right? They go, war is over. And then I sing my part, and then your part is, if you want it, right? right? So, so he says, and so this is Christmas. This is your part. For weak and for strong. For rich and for poor ones. The world is so wrong. And so happy Christmas for black and for white, for yellow and red ones. Let's stop all the fight. Your line there was now, I should have told you. Um, And so you get this picture that it's up to us to work together, to end war, to end violence, to overcome all injustice if we all just work together. We can make the world a better place. We can make the world that we want unity and peace. The answer is that we all believe in ourselves. Friends, this idea that if we just believe in ourselves, we can create the world we want, that we can fix the problems of the world is gobbledygook. That's a theological term. It's trash. It does not work. It didn't work for Ahaz, it didn't work for Adam in the garden, and it won't work for us. We cannot fix the whole world, we can't even fix ourselves. You know this to be true. You know this to be true. You let you down all the time. The message of Christmas is not if we all just pull together and believe in ourselves, we can make the world a better place. It is the opposite of that. Christmas says we have made such a mess, the only way for it to be cleaned up is if the God of the universe takes on flesh, enters into our situation, and fixes it for us. Christmas is not sentimentalism. The Bible doesn't tell us to believe in yourself. It says, believe in Jesus. He is the light, not you. Satan is the one who whispers in your ear. right? He doesn't ever whisper in your ear, believe in me. He says, believe in yourself. Because that's what will take you far, far away from God. Because you won't think that you need him. You'll think that you have whatever it is within yourself to to make things right, and you don't. It's a lie. Those who walk in darkness, continue to believe in themselves rather than in the God of the universe, will have no dawn. We who walk in darkness need a light to come. And so Isaiah is warning his disciples. Don't believe in yourself like the culture around you and don't give up hope because the end is not the judgment of God for those who believe. But light, there is a day coming when things will get better. God is faithful. And so he tells us at the beginning of, verse, or of chapter nine, nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of former times When God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, uh, God humbled these lands. They were kind of on the fringes, and these are the first lands where foreign peoples invaded, and so it was humiliating. Uh, But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. And this is where Jesus comes. This is where the light shows up. The Messiah shows up here, and so they are honored. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. And so we see Isaiah saying a light is going to dawn and there is going to be great rejoicing. It's going to be a complete, full joy. It gives us that picture of a complete and full joy. If he looks at, they're going to rejoice as they do at harvest time. And so, at harvest time, everybody, the world is at peace. You have peace. You're able to grow crops and then harvest them. And there's great joy in that. He says that's the kind of joy that's going to be there. There's also going to be uh, the kind of joy that comes with plundering an enemy that you've defeated. He says they're going to rejoice. As they, have, as they would when they divide spoils. And so when you are at war and you defeat the enemy, you go in and you take their stuff. And so you've got these contrasting spheres of joy in the verse, which are meant to point us to this fullness of joy. Every kind of joy that there is, God is going to bring to his people when this light dawns in the darkness. And he says not, not only that, but if you look in verse three, he's going to enlarge the nation and increase its joy. God It might seem like you are the only one faithful, Isaiah is saying. It might seem like you're the only faithful ones, but there is coming a time when God is going to bring about the multiplication of his people, when there are many faithful, many who put their faith in him, and he is going to bring them a complete joy. And so then we ask the question, well, how? How does this joy come? How is God going to do this? And that's what we're told in the remaining verses, verses 4 Through 7, we're told that God is going to bring joy to his people by giving them freedom from their oppression, by giving them the fruit of his victory, and he's going to do all of this by providing for them a faithful king. Let's look at this freedom from oppression in verse 4. You see, you've shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, And this language immediately is meant to evoke in our minds the exodus. Uh, Some of your translations might have the word burden in here as well. But we see yoke, rod, staff for a people who traces their history back to the exodus, to being in slavery. This certainly conjured up images of the ten plagues, of darkness, of judgment on the firstborn. And of doorways covered with the blood of the Lamb. And of God ultimately bringing them out of slavery and into sonship. Friends, this imagery in this text is meant to remind us of the old Exodus and also point us to the new Exodus, which comes in Jesus Christ, who is the one who takes us out of slavery to sin and brings us into the sonship of God's people. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who shelters us from the right judgment of God. Jesus, who frees us from our slavery to sin and makes us servants of righteousness. We also see we are freed from oppression. This this freedom from oppression is unlikely. This is just as you did on the day of Midian. And what we have on the day of Midian is an unlikely hero. And Jesus is an unlikely Messiah. People don't expect it. Midian, if you remember, happens in Judges chapter 6 through 8. There's a guy named Gideon there. It just, just happens to rhyme. And so, so Midian rises up against Israel, and this man named Gideon is singled out by God. He says, you, Gideon, from the smallest tribe, weakest person in your tribe. So Gideon's like the weakest of the weak. He says, you are going to deliver Israel from Midian. And Gideon's like, I don't know. You know, he kind of gives us halfway obedience. He has the whole thing with the fleece. You know, that's actually unbelief, right? He lays out those fleece. Uh, and eventually he gets around to, he's like, all right, God, I'm going to uh, lead this, this people, this army against Midian, and we are going to enjoy your deliverance. And so he he gets 32,000 troops together, and then God says, actually, Gideon, listen, you have too many dudes. 32,000 people might confuse this and think, like, you're a great military leader. Come on. We both know that's not true. This is about my glory. I'm the one who gives the victory. And so you're going to need to get rid of some of these guys. And so Gideon's like, "Uh, anybody that's not that into fighting this war can just go home. Guys are like, all right. So 22,000 people leave there's 10,000 left. And God says to Gideon, look, man, still too many guys. Still way too many guys. And there's that whole thing where, like, do they lap the water or drink the water? And you end up, long story short, they end up with 300 soldiers. And God's like, okay, that's enough to make it clear that it's me who's giving the victory here. You're going to win an unlikely victory against Midian. And then there's this like comical scene when Gideon's trying to spy out the enemy and he hears them talking to one another around the fire. And basically they're interpreting dreams and they say, Gideon's coming for us. And so he gets really encouraged by that. He like runs back. He's like, all right guys, here's what we're gonna do. And he just reveals like he's not a great military mind at this point. He's like, we're gonna get a bunch of torches in one hand and we're gonna cover them kind of with a jar so that they can't be seen, all right? We're gonna get trumpets in the other hand. And guys are like, what about a sword or a shield? He's like, no, 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 no. Listen, I got this. So, so torches and trumpets, and and we're going to surround them. Just, just follow my lead. And so they they surround the camp of the Midianites, and Gideon's like smiling, like thumbs up, and everybody's like, this guy's crazy, but whatever. Uh, and, and so he gets his, his little trumpet out, and like, and they're all like, and then all of a sudden he smashes that like whatever was concealing the torch. And so all at once, there's the sound of trumpets and lights burst everywhere. And the people yell, a sword for Yahweh and a sword for Gideon. And the enemy turns on one another, kills one another and scatters. And so Gideon wins this most unlikely victory. Israel's freed from their oppressors by the hand of God. And that's the point. God is the one who is doing the work, not Gideon. God is freeing his people. He he freed his people from the Exodus. He freed his people from the Midianites. God is able to deliver his people. When they turn to him in faith, he can do it. It's interesting as we read this passage on this side of the cross that God announces... His unlikely hero, Jesus, by bringing darkness from light with the sound of shouts. Look at Luke 2, 8-14. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over the flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. Angels are really scary. They're not not like precious moments. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. And so we have an announcement of another unlikely hero with the bursting forth of light in the darkness. And shouts, not of a sword for Yahweh and a sword for Gideon, but of glory to God in the highest. God is again bringing victory to his people. Just as he brought them out of slavery in Egypt into sonship in his household, just as he freed the people of Israel from the oppression of Midian, so too will he free his people from the oppression of sin. And he will do it in the most unlikely way. From a baby born on the outside of town in a cave purposed for a stable, God will bring victory to his people. Verse 5 For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war, or all the garments rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. God is going to bring this victory, and it's going to be so complete that everyone around him, much like Gideon's soldiers, we're not going to need swords and shields or weapons of war because Jesus, who is the king to come, has done all the fighting for us. We can this imagery of just taking all of our weapons of war and throwing them into the domestic fireplace of God. Because God has already won the battle. God is the one who ends war. God is the one who brings peace, not us. God does it. We, we merely have to enter into the fruits of his victory. It's a, a great story to illustrate this in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. Syria is besieging Samaria. And there's this great famine in the land. And we're talking like people are dying of hunger famine. The text says uh, donkey heads are being sold for an exorbitant amount. People normally didn't eat donkey head. Uh, And also the dung of doves is being sold for like an exorbitant amount of money. People, People are paying to eat donkey heads and dove poop. It's pretty bad. There's this, this really awful scene where, where the king is walking along and, and a woman comes up to him and she's in tears. And she says, this terrible thing has happened. Me and this other woman agreed that uh, I would, one day we would boil my child, my son, and we would eat him. And the next day we would boil her child and, and eat her child. But we ate, we ate my son to survive. And behold, she's hidden her son. It's not kept her into the deal. And the king of Israel, in response, he's just so mad. He tears his garments and he blames the prophet Elisha. He says to his right-hand man, Captain, Go and cut off the head of Elisha. This is this is his fault, this famine. And so The captain of the guard goes and Elisha knows he's coming. He's with a bunch of other uh, elders. And he's like, hey, uh, captain of the guard's coming. Let's lock the doors. And there's this kind of comical scene where the doors are locked and the guy can't get into Elisha, but they're talking to one another. And so uh, Elisha says to him, look, this time tomorrow, there is going to be so much food. It's it's going to blow your mind. The famine's going to be over. Food will be really, really cheap. You'll be able to go get a, a burger at cookout. And the captain of the guard says, even if God opens up the windows of heaven, your words could not be true. And Elisha responds to him in verse 2 of chapter 7 in 2 Kings, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Then the story shifts, kind of awkwardly, uh, to these four lepers who are kind of in the gate area. So they're quarantined off from the rest of the people uh, and from the Syrians. And so they, they're talking to one another and they're going, you know, we're probably going to die soon of hunger. And so here's, here are our options. We can stay here and die. We can, go, we can try and go into the city where there isn't any food and die. Or we could, <laughs> this is going to sound crazy, we could go to the Syrians. They might kill us. They'll probably kill us. We would die. That's worst case scenario. But there's a chance they could give us some food. And so they look at each other and they're like, so you're saying there's a chance. And they decide, we're going to go to Syrians. Let's, you know, cowboy up, let's go. And so verse 5 in 2 Kings. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And so these four lepers, they enjoy the food, they hide some of it for themselves, and then they're like, We should probably go tell everyone else. And they do. And then everyone ends up coming out of the city to get this food. Elisha's words are coming true. And in the process, the captain of the guard is told to guard the gate. And as he stands there, he sees that the people are going to be fed. He is trampled to death. So his eyes see the plenty and the end of the famine, but he does not eat of it. So here's here's the point. God wins the victory. He delivers the fruit of victory to all who will come and partake of it. But for the one who doesn't believe, there is only judgment. There is only darkness. God has won the greatest victory that could ever be won. That over sin and death. He offers to us all the blessings of heaven. He offers to us eternal life, but to enter into, to enjoy that gift, we must believe in Him. We must take hold of the gift of God. We must submit ourselves to His faithful King prophesied for us here in verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So we are told the person who will bring all of this joy about is a king who will reign on the throne of David over all of David's kingdom. Remember, the kingdom is divided right now, he's going to unite the kingdom. He's going to fulfill the purpose of Israel. He's going to bless the nations. This king will be born for the people. He will be a son that's given to the people. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Wait a minute. These are titles that are only applied to God in Scripture. And so what is being said here? Is that this child who is to be born is going to be God? Now, don't miss this. This speaks to us of one of the two supreme miracles in Christianity. Did you know there were two? There are there are two. There are a bunch of miracles, but I think two supreme ones. Uh, one is the resurrection, but I might I might put this miracle above that one. It, it blows my mind a little bit more. Speaking, of course, of the incarnation where God becomes a man, where God the Son never ceases to be what he was, but becomes what he was not. God, the the creator of everyone and everything, enters into and becomes part of his creation. The invisible becomes visible. The almighty becomes hungry. His nose runs. He cries for milk from his mother's breast. His armpits. God enters into his creation so that he might become killable. You see, Christmas, the birth of Christ, gives us his whole life in miniature. He becomes a man, he enters into the world with blood on his face, a scream in his throat, and he is laid on a wooden manger. And at his death, he leaves the world with blood on his face, a scream in his throat, laid upon the wood of a cross. He was born to die. The incarnation is about propitiation. Jesus is born so that he might die in your place and in my place, and so that he might live a perfect life in your place and in my place. This this is the scandal of Christianity. Is that we who deserve death get every spiritual blessing when we put our faith in Christ? And it's not just, just as if I never sinned. Perhaps you've heard that, right? It's true, it's part of justification. But it's not just as if you never sinned. It's also just as if you did absolutely everything right in your life. You're not just forgiven of your sin. You are also given every spiritual blessing. You're given all the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at you, he delights in you. The scandal of Christianity is that God saves sinners who deserve nothing more than his judgment. Indeed, this child that will be born is God. He, he is the gift of God. God has won for us salvation. He, he's brought, made a way for us to come into relationship with himself, but it is a gift we must receive. Otherwise, there is just judgment left for us. And it's a hard gift to receive. This is uh, made evident to us in John Famously in 316, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, verse 18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We have this bent to believe in ourselves and to trust ourselves rather than God. And because it's devastating to human pride to put all of our faith and trust in Jesus instead of our own righteousness. It makes the gospel a most difficult gift to receive. In fact, the only way any of us believe in God is if God does the miracle of regeneration in our hearts and gives us the gift of faith. You go, well, how do I know if I have the gift of faith? Well, you want to believe. You choose to believe. That's how you know. It's not an easy gift to receive. I always love this illustration. It's, it's as if uh, you woke up Christmas morning, and you were tearing away some of that wrapping paper. You, you pulled on the little bow, and uh, once you get it all worked out inside, there's a dieting book. Yeah. And then you go, and you get your next present, and you know, same deal. You kind of get into there. You're ripping it apart. You're excited. It is a book titled, uh, Overcoming Selfishness. Now, these, these are gifts But to receive them, you are admitting something. Like when you say, thank you, like genuinely, you're admitting, you know, maybe I'm a little obnoxious and I should hit the gym. Like it's, it's, you have to swallow your pride. You have to swallow your pride to receive a gift like that. No gift in history makes you swallow your pride more than the gift of the Son of God given for you. Christmas is is not about believing in yourself and uh, warm fuzzies and everybody kumbaya and and trying to, to, to create the world we wish we had. We can't. We'll fail. Christmas is about what God does. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. And we're never going to understand Christmas until we understand that. We're never going to understand Christmas until we submit to the King of Christmas. We're never going to be able to truly rejoice at Christmas, to sing about the joy that Jesus brings until a light dawns in our hearts and we come to Christ in faith. Indeed, the world is a dark place, but Jesus is the light of the world. And he can show you the way out. Look to the light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for giving to us that which we do not deserve. We thank you for loving us. For by your grace, sending the Son whom you've loved for all eternity in perfect harmony to become a man so that he might become killable. Thank you that Christ died so that we might die to sin, that Christ lives so that we might live to righteousness with no fear of death. Thank you that he rules and reigns and that he will return to make all things new, to everything sad, and untrue. We thank you that indeed a light has dawned and that the light will come once more to chase away each and every darkness once and for all. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.